We come again this morning to the letter of Galatians. This letter is about the very heart of the gospel. Paul had poured out his, his life into these Galatian churches, but false teachers have begun to lead them astray to a different gospel. And the false teachers said, if you want to be righteous, then keep the old covenant law outwardly. And they, of course, meant the Ten Commandments outwardly, the basic bare bones of the Ten Commandments, but they also meant particularly the things that were associated with being a Jew. So Sabbath, circumcision, food laws, Jewish Seventh-day Sabbath. They taught if the Gentiles wanted to be Christians, they needed to become Jews. That's what they were teaching. And there was all this self-righteousness that accompanied it. And Paul, from the very first words of this letter, is deeply troubled. He loved these people. He knew them. He had planted these churches. So he has this, a great sense of urgency for them. And he wants them to have the life and the comfort of the gospel and of especially the heart of the gospel, which is justification. So if you will, please join with me in reading Galatians 3, verses 1 to 9, but we're really just going to look at verse 6, but we'll read 1 to 9 for context. Verse 6 is, is a very clear statement about the heart of this letter's doctrine, which is justification, and that's what we'll be looking at this morning. But Paul says to the Galatians, and hear his urgency and his love. He says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you freely give the gift of justification to wretched sinners who just believe. Lord, help us to not just understand this, but to, to, to believe this, to believe Jesus. Those of us who don't believe, Lord, I pray you'd work in their hearts that they would believe today. That those of us who do believe, Lord, that we'd believe more, that our faith would be strengthened by looking at your matchless and infinite love and grace found in Jesus to justify those who deserve only condemnation. 
We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's look at what Paul says about justification. He quotes Genesis 15.6. So he's making his case in this letter, not just by the inspiration of the Spirit, but by quoting the Old Testament. And here's what he says. Verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So do you see the word righteousness there? We can look at it in verse 6 if you, if you have your Bible. Notice how the word right is in it. To be righteous means you're right before God. This word, the Greek word translated righteousness here, is exactly the same word that can be translated justification. There's no difference. So we could translate this, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as justification. Do you hear the word just in it? If you're justified, then you are just. Justice does not stand against you if you're justified. In fact, if you're justified, justice is on your side. That's what it means to be justified. But the big question in the book of Galatians is, how can man be right with God? That's the question, very simply. I wonder if you have that question. How can man be right with God? You have big sins. You know something is wrong with you. You feel it. And something is wrong with you. And something is wrong with me. We're sinners. We don't trust God or love Him like we should. We trust ourselves too much. We sometimes hurt ourselves and we hurt other people. And we know that in our hearts that God hates that. And we know something's wrong. And we might try to justify ourselves and pretend that everything's okay and put on a a front or whatever, but we know something's wrong with us. And it's actually nothing but pure grace if we can even ask the question, how can I be right with God? And it's grace upon grace if you can ask an even better question, how can God be right with me? How can I know that God is okay with me? That's the question. That God and I are on good terms. How can I know that? How can that be the case? And that's exactly the question verse 6 is answering. And the false teachers gave a wrong answer. They said, if you want to be right with God, you have to keep the old covenant. That's what they said. You need to be circumcised, keep the food laws, keep the law. What's the problem with that answer? Just think about it for a second. How can you be right with God? Well, keep the law. What's the problem? The problem is that if you try to keep the law as a sinner, you won't be actually just. You can never be righteous on your best day. You could keep the Ten Commandments outwardly, perfectly outwardly. In fact, you could not lie, not steal, not murder, not do anything that is outwardly covetous. You could do that, probably, for a while, for quite a long while. Not lying might be more difficult. But as it was given originally, not bearing false witness, you could not sit on a witness stand and lie. You could do the formal outward things and keep the commandments of God. You could do that, but what's the problem with it? It's, it's not just. 
you're still not righteous. In order to understand how we can be right with God, we have to understand what righteousness really is or what justice really is. And God's justice is absolute and inflexible. It is spiritual. God's justice requires perfect love. Perfect love to God, perfect love to man. That's what the law requires. The law is a law of love. Why? Why does God's justice require perfect holiness of heart and perfect obedience to His law? Well, because God's law, which is a law of love, the law of love, is a reflection of His own perfectly holy character. Who is God? God is love. And His law is the standard of it. And His law reveals Him. And it's perfect. That means that for God to declare someone righteous... They have to be righteous, not just on the outside, but on the inside. That's what true righteousness is. Now, someone might say, well, look, Brother Tom, God is love, He's righteous, He's holy, but He's also gracious, isn't He? And He's forgiving, and so God can declare anyone righteous that He wants to. He's God, after all, but think about it. Can a perfectly holy God justly choose can, is he able to justly choose to call evil good? Can he call someone who's unrighteous righteous? Can he justify the wicked? Proverbs seventeen fifteen says, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Can God justly relax his good law? Is it even possible for a good God, who is, by the way, if God isn't good, He's not God. That's the definition of God. Well, not definite. It's it's who He is. He is goodness. Can a good God say, as long as you outwardly obey the Ten Commandments, I can call you righteous? We all make mistakes. I'll just gloss those over. As long as you do your best to honor me, I will accept you what the medieval theologians said, some of them. said, God gives His grace to those who do their best. Can God change the standard of His own goodness or lower it to make it easy enough for you to keep? Can He do that justly? No, God can no more relax His law than He can choose to become unholy or unloving because the law is the manifestation, the revelation of God. What would it say about God's character if he were to declare a person to be right or just when they're not really right or just? It would say, God's not good. What would you think at a human level of a judge who said, here's a wicked murderer who slaughtered people in your family, and because I'm merciful, I'm going to let him go. They need to do some some time, maybe some community service or whatever. No. That's a wicked judge. So now let's return to the question, how can sinful man be right with God? But let me put it a little differently so you can feel the point. What 
can you do to be justified? What do you have to do to be right with God? Now, some, some people believe they have an answer to that. So I, I know the answer to that question. That's easy. You trust in Jesus. Put your faith in Christ. Your faith will justify you. And then they would point to our verse here in verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. See? How can you be righteous? Well, you'd believe in the Lord Jesus. But does this verse say that Abraham's faith justified him? Look at it carefully. Abraham had faith. But think about it for a minute. How good was Abraham's faith? Do you remember who Abraham was? If you go to the Old Testament, how good was his faith? Did his faith measure up or even begin to measure up to what God commanded? The story of Abraham teaches us that Abraham had a terribly flawed faith. Even after Abraham believed in Genesis 15, he doubted, he laughed at the promise, and then he committed adultery to try to achieve the promise by sinful works. What kind of faith is that? So what does Abraham's faith have to do with him being righteous or justified before God? He certainly did believe. What's it got to do with him being righteous? Well, look what it says. It's very precise. Abraham believed God and his faith was counted to him as righteousness. That word counted is very important. It does not say that Abraham's faith made him righteous. It does not say that Abraham's faith is what justified him. The word counted means regarded or reckoned. Abraham believed God and God regarded Abraham's faith as righteousness. So what's going on here? What is this about? Well, back to our original question. How can sinful man be right with God? Or to put it differently, what do you have to do to be right with God? You and me. What do you have to do to be right with God? And the true answer may surprise you. People who feel their guilt and sins, which I hope you do, means you have a conscience. If you feel your guilt and your sin, hallelujah. That is grace. It's nothing but pure grace if you feel your shame, your guilt. But if you feel it, then you probably want to know what you can do to be right with God. What can I do to be right with God? But the correct answer is nothing. You can do absolutely nothing to be right with God. So stop trying. You can't do anything. Don't try to make yourself right with God. Give it up. Give it up. Cease striving. Be still. Do not pray a prayer to be right with God. Do not start trying to repent or to change to be right with God. Do not make yourself better to be right with God. Do not try to fix your problem. Don't do anything. Because you cannot do anything to make yourself right with God. It's impossible. But now ask this question. What is the one attitude of the heart that has a completely passive aspect? 
What is the one disposition of the soul that does nothing in itself but relies completely on another? It's faith. Faith as justifying the faith that saves you as justifying rests in Christ alone for justification. Faith as justifying does nothing but collapse upon Christ. Faith justifies the way lying on a bed at night holds you up off the floor. That's how faith justifies. It's what you're lying on that holds you up. Your lying down does not hold you up at all. It's what you're lying on that holds you up. And so, faith as justifying rests in Jesus. And why should you rest in him? Because the Lord Jesus Christ is true God, able to save, and true man, able to atone and identify and be a substitute for you. Just consider Christ's life where he came into this world to completely satisfy God's law. He loved God perfectly, didn't he? And he loved others perfectly. You and I don't. You ever read the Gospels and you just feel convicted? Like, look at all that Jesus is doing and how far short I fall. Well, that's one way to read the Gospels. The other way is he did all this in my place for my justification. All this goodness of Jesus is imputed to me for my righteousness before God. And then he went to the cross and he took our sins to himself and died for them. He fulfilled the whole law. And here's what that means. If Jesus filled up the law of God to satisfy God's justice, there is no room for any more works from you or me to satisfy justice. They won't fit. Justice is full. There's nothing we can possibly do more. That's why all we're called upon to do is rest for our justification, to lean upon him. And that's why God counted Abraham's faith as righteousness. He believed that through the promise, an offspring would come to save him and all of God's people. And Abraham was resting in the salvation of another. And that's why God counted Abraham's faith as righteousness. But now let me ask you, do you want to be right with God? Maybe you've gotten different kinds of advice about how to be right with God. Maybe someone has told you you should come to church to be right with God. There's a sign on an interstate in Alabama that says, go to church or the devil will get you. Or maybe you've been told that you need to keep the Ten Commandments. You know, legalists add all kinds of laws to God's law, and you say, I don't want to be a legalist. I'd rather just keep the Ten Commandments. Well, if you get the idea or feel in your heart that you're righteous, because most of us know better, many of us know better than in our heads to believe we're righteous because of our obedience to the Ten Commandments, God's true law. But the moment we start to feel that we're righteous, because we're doing what God says, we've got it between the lines, then we're legalists at heart. I have a little legalist in me. Sometimes he's not so little. Or maybe you've seen that there's a certain way to run a Christian home. 
And if you're a faithful spouse, a faithful parent, and you order your home faithfully, then you can feel that you're right before God. Maybe other Christians will feel that way too. Or maybe you've been taught that if you want to know that you're right with God, you need to examine yourself. You need to look into your heart. You heard this? Look into your heart to see whether or not God has really done a work within you. And if God has worked within you, you'll find a sincere change in your heart. And you'll be able to see, when you look into your heart, you can see faith and hope and love in your heart. And then that's your warrant to feel confident that you are right with God. But if you don't find those changes in your heart, then you need to pray and plead with God to work in you for your salvation. You need to seek Him earnestly so that you'll be really converted and really believe and really repent of your sins. And what's the problem with all this? Well, there's two problems I would suggest with this. The first is they all, all those efforts, all of those doings fall infinitely short of what God actually requires. Absolute, perfect righteousness. You're still not conformed to God's law if you did them all. If you did them all well enough to feel good about yourself, if you did them all well enough so that everyone else felt good about you, you'd still fall far short of the righteousness God requires. Second, all of these efforts to be right with God by works. And here again, probably many of you would never say that with your words or think it with your head. But I wonder if practically speaking, sometimes we feel that way. The problem is, all those works, thinking we can do it this way, feeling we can do it this way, imply that we really can do something to make ourselves right with God, which is proud. Do you see how self-trusting and self-righteous it is? If you could do it, if you could pull it off well enough to where you think, I'm really living like a Christian now, I'm really right with God now, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do, you'd be able to boast, wouldn't you? Please turn with me to Romans 4. Romans 4, verses 1 to 6. Paul says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That means God called the faith righteousness because of what the faith was resting on. He called the faith righteous, not because the faith was righteous, but he regarded it righteous because of what the faith was resting on only. That's what it's saying. Verse 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And then verse 5, 
And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Do you see those wonderfully gracious words in verse 5? Verse 5 is almost unbelievable. Look at it. And to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. That can't be right, can it? Surely not. Really? Well, you say, well, at the beginning of salvation, maybe. That that applies like at the very, very beginning and then right immediately thereafter, your works add on to your justification. No, never. That's what it's saying. Paul, Paul is saying that faith is completely opposed to all doing, all effort, and all work when it comes to justification. That's what he's teaching. Faith and effort are incompatible in justification. So what can you do to be right with God? Well, verse 5 answers you. You must be one who does not work, but believes. Will you stop working? Believe it or not, I have found, at least in myself, that can be a lot harder than it sounds. Trusting Christ means that we have to stop lying to ourselves and to God. We have to stop pretending we can do anything for our righteousness. We have to stop pretending to ourselves, to God, that we aren't sinners and admit our need. We have to stop thinking that if we try harder, we can really pull this off this time and be acceptable and righteous before God. But if we believe we can actually meet that standard, we have far too high an opinion of ourselves, so we have to cease striving. And only when we're honest with ourselves and with God about how great our sin really is, we're ready to rest in Jesus for our justification. And He promises that He will forgive us as a free gift through His blood. If you look back at Romans 3, verses 24 to 25, it says we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Do you see the word grace there? I, I love the sound. I just love how that word sounds. Do you? Grace. You know the hymn, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Grace refers to God's demerited favor. What that means is that grace is a gift of God to those who deserve judgment. 
And what does He give you freely by grace? According to verse 24, it says, you were justified by His grace as a gift. Justification is a gift of free grace to those who demerit it. And the fact that justification is a gift is a reason verse 25 says it is received by faith only. What can you do to receive the gift of justification? What can you do? Nothing. But trust Him to give it to you. So will you trust Him right now? That's an invitation. Will you trust Him? Maybe you don't trust Him. Will you? The Bible does invite, but it also commands. This isn't something for you to reflect upon and mull over in your mind if you want to do it or not. It's a command of the sovereign to believe. You don't get a choice. You must believe. He says, fall into my arms. You must. He calls on you to trust him. Maybe you've never come to Christ before because you're not sure he'll love you or forgive you. Are you weary of your guilt and shame? You know what's in your heart to some degree. Maybe you think that if you trust Christ today, you're only going to disappoint him later or that you won't be good enough for him. But Jesus never says you have to become good enough for him. You're never going to be good enough for him. Did you know that? The most mature saint in all the world is still not good enough for Jesus. You're never going to be good enough for him. He calls on you to trust in him. And if you trust in him, he'll declare you righteous as a free gift of grace. That's what the Bible says. Or maybe you do trust Jesus, but part of you has forgotten that you can't make yourself righteous. That happens in real Christians. We have forgotten that we've been cleansed from our former sins. Real Christians can lose sight of Jesus, of His love, of His righteousness freely granted. He calls on you and me to trust Him too. Here's a Christian who feels deep down that they don't measure up as a Christian. Sometimes they can put on a good face. They know how to pretend. They've learned how to pretend and how to fool other people. And they can even fool themselves sometimes. But deep down, they know they don't measure up and they're not sure that they ever can. Well, beloved, this gospel is for you. The righteousness of Christ is only for those who don't measure up now and forever because you never will measure up and neither will I the righteousness of Christ is yours by free grace and you must never try to be righteous in yourself now lest some of you misunderstand this doesn't mean the father never lovingly disciplines us because of his love he does He is displeased with our sins. Why? Because they destroy us and they hurt our fellowship with us. So, of course, God the Father lovingly disciplines us. And if you trust Him to save you, then you will trust Him to rule you. And you'll learn more and more to trust Him as King. 
But the father is never displeased with his children in themselves because they are in Christ. He never withdraws his grace and love from you, and you are all, always and only justified because of free grace and what Jesus has done. And so we've been looking at this great doctrine of justification and trying to look at it in a very practical sense. But I would like us to consider what this doctrine is, and the Bible teaches it throughout. And so let's reflect on some passages that teach this together. Here's about five. We could look at more, but you're in Rome, we're in Romans, so please look at Romans 3.28 with me and see it repeated here. Romans 3.28 says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Such a clear statement. It's by means of faith. It's not because of faith. It's not you're justified on the basis of your faith or on the ground of your faith. It's only by. It's just purely a means. Where, what are the works of the law? Well, it's not just the works of the old covenant Paul's talking about. He's talking about any and all works, including the works of faithful love as a Christian. None of those count for your justification. It's by faith only. And then if you would, flip forward with me in Romans to chapter 4, verse 13. It says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. Notice, that's an eternal inheritance. You see? Heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And then Romans 5, verse 1, which we read in the call to worship, says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Naturally, in our sins, God is at war with us, and we're at war with Him. We're enemies estranged, but what does this say? Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. The war is over. He has made peace with us. Now please turn with me to Galatians 2.16. Look at another passage that teaches this so plainly. I'm piling up these verses for a reason. I want you to see this is not an obscure teaching in the Scriptures. We could even look at more. There's places in the Gospels where Christ teaches it. But I'm, just, I'm showing you about five passages. This is important. that You, you believe that this is what the Scriptures teach because that's what our faith rests on. Galatians 2.16, Paul says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So also, we have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. He's making it very clear. No works. No efforts, no doings, actually nothing, nothing at all, but accept His promise. And then if you will, turn with me to Philippians 3.9. Philippians 3.9. So here Paul says, 
that he, he seeks to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So this is a righteousness that is a gift from God that depends on faith only. So how could we state this great biblical teaching? Well, very simply, we could say God justifies all who trust in Jesus because of what Jesus did, not because of what you do. God justifies all who have faith in Jesus because of what Jesus did, not because of what you do. Do you hear the did and do? The contrast? This is the law gospel contrast. If we don't understand the distinction, now the law gospel con- distinction, contrast, is, is really in justification. It applies in sanctification, but there's a duality, a, a, a sharp separation between law and gospel in justification. And here's what it is. The law says do for justification. The gospel says done for justification. Now, the law is also in the gospel because what has Jesus done? The law. He did it for us as our substitute in justification. And how exactly did Christ obey the law for our righteousness? Well, there's two parts of Christ's obedience that's credited to us. First, his sufferings and his atoning death pays for the, our sins. This is called his passive obedience. What did he do? He suffered his passion He suffered in our place. He died in our place to cancel the curse. But second, Christ's perfect obedience to God satisfies His justice on our behalf. And so it's not enough to just have our debt paid. We need a positive righteousness. And so we need the fullness of His active obedience to be credited to us, imputed to us. Let me read you a few questions and answers from the great Westminster Larger Catechism that helps us express this great biblical doctrine. The Westminster Standards are a banner of Reformed Orthodoxy that grew out of the Protestant Reformation. Here's question 70 and 71. And listen to this. This is a life. This is not dry, dusty old doctrine. This is what we need. This is, the, the, this is milk for our souls. And it says this. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace unto sinners in which he pardons all their sins, accepts and accounts their persons righteous in his sight, not because of anything wrought in them or done by them, but only for the perfect obedience and full satisfaction of Christ by God imputing it to them and received by faith alone. Then question 71, how is justification an act of God's free grace? The answer is, although Christ, by his obedience and death, did make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to God's justice in the behalf of them that are justified, yet inasmuch as God accepts the satisfaction from a surety, you know what a surety is? It's a legal term. Surety is someone who signs a contract under your name that if you can't pay the debt, they will. That's what a surety is. It's a legal word. And Jesus 
signed his name under it. If you can't pay it, I will. That's what a surety is. And he says, accepts the satisfaction from a surety which, might ha- which he might have demanded of them and did provide us this surety, his own only son, imputing his righteousness to them and requiring nothing of them for their justification. Did you hear that? He requires nothing of you for your justification, but faith, which also is his gift. Their justification is to them of free grace. Now, some people are suspicious that this doctrine is uh, uniquely reformed or came out of the Protestant Reformation. They're like, well, did this get invented? Where was it earlier in church history? I want to read you a couple of quotations from earlier church fathers to let you see. This did not emerge in the Protestant Reformation. The Reformers believed they were recovering the old faith when they taught this. So Clement of Rome in AD 90 wrote this, We too, being called by His will in Christ Jesus, are not justified by ourselves, nor by our own wisdom or understanding or godliness or works which we have wrought in holiness of heart, but by that faith through which from the beginning Almighty God has justified all men to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The Epistle of Diognetus, AD 130. Oh, the surpassing kindness and love of God. He did not hate us or reject us or bear a grudge against us. Instead, He was patient and forbearing. In His mercy, He took upon Himself our sins. He gave Himself... He gave... He himself gave up his own son as a ransom for us, the Holy One for the lawless. Do you hear the great exchange? The Holy One for the lawless. The guiltless for the guilty, the just for the unjust, the incorruptible for the corruptible, the immortal for the mortal. What else but his righteousness could have covered our sins in whom it was possible for us, the lawless and ungodly, to be justified except in the Son of God alone, Oh, the sweet exchange, the incomprehensible work of God. Oh, the unexpected blessings that the sinfulness of many should be hidden in one righteous person while the righteousness of one should justify many sinners. John Chrysostom, 347 A.D., last of the church fathers, but it says, What then is Paul saying? Not that God has forbidden works, but that he has forbidden us to be justified by works. No one, Paul says, is justified by works precisely in order that the grace and benevolence of God may become apparent. In closing, let me read you an illustration found in a commentary by Ben Witherington and recounted in Richard Phillips. And it shows this, that to be justified, we need both to be forgiven of our sins And we need uh, Christ to give us the title to life eternal. So we need two blessings. We need the cancellation of a debt, and we need the right and title to eternal life. And here is um, the illustration. William Herschel was a young boy growing up in Hanover, Germany. Herschel loved listening to military music. Eventually, he joined a military band. But when the nation went to war, he found himself marching into battle totally unprepared for the horrors of war. During a period of intense fighting, Herschel deserted his unit and he fled from the field of battle. And the penalty for desertion was death. 
So Herschel could no longer remain in Germany. He fled to England to pursue further studies in music and science. Eventually, he became a famous man, renowned throughout Europe for his musical ability as well as his scientific discoveries, especially in astronomy. Herschel had left his past behind him, and for many years he gave little thought to the death sentence that remained over him. But then another German arrived in Britain, George, head of the House of Hanover, crowned King of England. King George knew the secret of Herschel's past and summoned him to appear before the royal court. With great trepidation, the scientist arrived at the palace where he was told to wait in a chamber outside the throne room. Finally, one of the king's servants brought Herschel a document. Anxiously, he opened it and he read the following words. I, George, pardon you for your past offenses against our native land. Herschel had received a royal pardon. The fact of his desertion was not overlooked, yet he was acquitted and therefore he was justified in the eyes of the law. But there's more to the story. The document the king gave to Herschel began by pronouncing him not guilty. But it went on to say that for his outstanding service to humanity as a musician and scientist, Herschel would be granted a knighthood. From that point on, he was one of King George's knights honored throughout the kingdom as Sir William Herschel. When Herschel was justified, not only was he declared righteous, but he became a friend of the king. That is what our justification does. It not only forgives our sins, but it gives us a title to eternal life and friendship with our king. And it does all of this, though there is nothing in us at all to commend us, but that we would just trust Jesus. Let's close with prayer. Lord, we thank you for this great grace of justification for Christ who has accomplished it all through his perfect life, death, and resurrection. Lord, help us to believe Jesus, not to trust ourselves, not our own wisdom, not our own works, not our own righteousness, but to abandon it all in point of justification and that we would rest in him, trust in him, who promises poor sinners who just trust in life eternal. We pray you'd help us to continue as we began by faith, looking unto Jesus in his name. Amen.